self-driving cars are here. Fully autonomous systems like Waymo are being piloted in less complex circumstances. Human-in-the-loop systems like Tesla Autopilot navigate drivers when it is safe to do so, and they let humans take control in ambiguous circumstances. Computers are great at memorization, but not yet great at reasoning. We cannot enumerate to a computer every single circumstance that a car might find itself in. The computer needs to perceive its surroundings, plan how to take actions, execute control over the situation, and respond to changing circumstances inside and outside of the car. Lex Friedman has worked on autonomous vehicles with companies like Google and Tesla. He recently taught a class on deep learning for semi-autonomous vehicles at MIT, which is freely available online. On YouTube, I recommend checking out those videos. They are awesome and really informative and actually not too technically dense. It's pretty interesting. Well, there are technically dense parts of it, but parts of it are just entertaining. Uh, there was so much ground to cover in this conversation because I have simply not talked in detail to many people who are involved in self-driving cars. Most of the conversation was higher level. How do you even approach this problem? What is the hardware and software architecture of a car? Lex had really satisfactory answers for these. They were not necessarily conclusive, but... They were interesting. I really enjoyed talking to Lex, and if you want to hear more from him, check out his podcast. It's called Take It Uneasy, which is about jujitsu. It's about judo and wrestling and learning and self-discipline, totally unrelated to software engineering, but you might find it interesting, especially if you like this episode. Is Zencaster doing the, the my side recording too? Yes. So Zencaster records a client side, it will put throw it in your browser cache and it'll upload it at the end. Actually, it streams it to Dropbox and it'll upload a WAV file at the end. And then you can send me the your client side recording also at the end, so I can just in case there's any corruption that occurs in the Zencaster recording, I'll have a backup. Nice. Does that okay. ever happen? It it does happen sometimes. Very rarely. I would say like five percent of cases, maybe. I guess that's significant, actually. <laughs> that is yeah actually i'm asking because I, I used to do a lot of interviews for a different kind of thing athletes really um, olympic athletes and so on I to, really I still have a podcast i guess but i haven't talked dude to that's cool <laughs> so i know uh, but i usually i prefer sort of the in person because yes. i can look some of these badasses in the eye and it's a little oh, yes. more sort of and, and the kind of questions i usually talked about is more about life and like fear and overcoming difficult times. So you you kind of want to be in person for <laughs> some of those. Listen, hey, it helps to look somebody in the eye and ask them about reinforcement learning too. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> Agreed. Wait, what's the name of your Olympic athlete podcast? It's called, not sure I want to advertise it, but it's uh, Take It Uneasy. Take, like it. Take, take it easy, but take it uneasy. I love the name. That's great. Can I put that in the show notes? Can I, in fact, can I put this like little preamble conversation in the show? This is good. I like it. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about deep learning and self-driving if you're ready to get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So Lex Friedman is a postdoc at MIT. He works on self-driving, deep learning, uh, deep learning for semi-autonomous vehicles. Lex, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. It's good to be here. Thanks, Jeff. You taught a class in deep learning for semi-autonomous vehicles. And early on in that class, you asked the question, I think this question recurs throughout your class, is, is driving closer to chess or to everyday conversation when you're looking at it from the point of view of can we automate this? Why is that an important question to ask? So it's a fascinating question. It's a subset of all kinds of questions uh, that I can summarize as what is intelligence. So it's trying to understand as human beings and as engineers that are trying to build intelligent machines, we have to figure out what tasks require intelligence and what is meant by quote-unquote intelligence in that case. So something like everyday conversation or walking, there's a whole category of things that as human beings, we sometimes don't realize how difficult they are when you actually 
have to sit down and uh, implement that task. So walking and everyday conversation is an example of it. So if I told you to create a, uh, create a chatbot, maybe as a software engineer, you would sit down, well, that's, that's pretty easy. Maybe you would start, uh, so I'm not a chatbot person, but it's a good example with the Turing test and so on. It's a good example of something that requires intelligence that we take for granted. So if you wanted to implement a chatbot, you might say you build a giant database of different kinds of responses based on the keywords that the other person says. Or you can start to try to understand the syntactical and semantic structure of the sentences. But the moment, as you start to encode all that information, you realize that the database grows, the knowledge base has to grow exponentially. And you have no way of growing that automatically. So it's an example of something when you start to actually build an engineering system, engineer a system that does this task, you realize how incredibly difficult it is. So that's what we think of like everyday conversations an example of that. Now driving, it's an open question whether driving is in that category of things that are actually exceptionally difficult and require human level intelligence, or it's something that could be reduced to a problem of detecting obstacles, detecting lanes, staying in the lane, and not hitting obstacles. So it's an open question that we have to face. We're actually building uh, autonomous vehicles that are supposed to drive there's several trillion miles are driven every year on roads. And there is only, I mean, it's tragic, but the number of fatalities in the United States is 38,000 last year. So the that means about one fatality per hundred something million miles. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of error rate you have to achieve with these systems. So you have to ask, well, how to achieve that, to achieve that error rate, to achieve that kind of low margin of error, what problem needs to be solved? Is it as simple as just detecting obstacles and avoiding them? Or is it something where we have to create a system that has an understanding of the physics of the world, an understanding of the human intent when you're looking at pedestrians and so on? There's just these millions of factors that you have to consider. Can they be reduced to something simple? These components of autonomous driving that you outline in the class are perception, localization, mapping, control, planning, driver state. So when you're breaking self-driving into these different components, is that taking an opinion that self-driving is falls in one of the camps of, of being closer to chess or closer to everyday conversation, or is it sort of a hedge between those? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it's uh, it's not really it's it is so breaking it down into those modules means you're leaning towards saying it's closer to chess. So that's a step towards. So by chess, I mean something that's it's well defined. It's well defined. You can formalize it. There's pieces. You can there's concepts of pieces. There's concepts of moves, actions. There's concepts of what the world encompasses, and the the breaking uh, autonomous vehicles into these modules of perception, control, really it's those two, perception and control, uh, is is going towards the camp of chess. Mm-hmm. Which is a problem that we're much more comfortable approaching as computer scientists, at least with our contemporary techniques. Yes, that's really well put. So with the contemporary techniques, if you think of software engineering, it's exactly the task of formalizing the entire so formalizing the problem, formalizing the solution. I mean, you have to really draw out the entire thing on paper. There's no ability for systems to say, okay, well, ninety percent of the task we don't really know how to solve, but the system will figure it out as it goes along. There, you can't write a program like that in the sort of contemporary in the current approaches. The, the a program that goes out there and has a human life at stake. Okay, so I want to talk about some of the technical aspects here. So deep learning is useful for a variety of problems in self-driving cars. What are some of those problems where you can apply deep learning? So deep learning is a type of machine learning. Given how successful deep learning has been, really, it's it can be just as comfortably referred to as machine learning. Because most of the problems where it's been effective has been dominated by deep learning. And so 
uh, deep learning has become machine learning. So machine learning is a set of techniques where you learn from data. A system is able to know nothing or very little in the beginning and given a lot of data and human annotation of that data. Human annotation, meaning a human being steps in and says what is going on in this data that's useful for solving the task. So given the human annotation and the data, you're able to learn how to behave in this world or to learn to predict things about the data, to extract knowledge from the data. And so that's machine learning, that's deep learning. And the in the driving domain, you know, a, a car, a passenger car, it's four wheels, it's tasked with, it can accelerate, decelerate, it can uh, at the sort of go left, go right, or more specifically, it can turn its steering wheel. Uh, it's, it's, it can steer. And really, those are the only actions. You can speed up, slow down, and you can steer. And so, and then there's an external world going on around, around the car. So it's tasked with perceiving that external world uh, to the degree that it needs to understand enough to be able to accelerate, decelerate, and steer. Okay, so you can reduce, you don't have to do any learning there. You can do, the perception can be uh, using a sensor like LiDAR and map the external environment and save that map, to build a giant map of the external, a three-dimensional map of the external world and localize yourself based on that map by using this LiDAR sensor that tells you, gives you depth information about around you. That's a non-learning approach. Learning says, well, I'll encode some information uh, at the beginning, but I'm going to learn about the way the world changes, about I, I'm going to learn about the way the world moves. I'm going to learn how the world looks visually in different situations. So what is a lane marking? I'm going to learn what a lane marking is by looking at hundreds of thousands of lane markings, having a human being step in and help me label the times when there's a lane marking, label the part of the image that's the lane marking. And over time, I'm able to generalize over videos I've never seen before of what a lane marking is. Mm -hmm. A Tesla vehicle, for example, is one that used, used to use up until at the end of last year, a mobile eye-based system, and now they have their own a deep learning-based system where it's predicting lane markings. And there's 100,000 plus cars on the road today that are driving themselves autonomously. Tesla vehicles are able to drive for hundreds of miles on the highway and stay in the lane. So it's able to, it's doing exactly that with a single camera detecting lane. And that's done with machine learning. So we did a show recently about deep learning and reinforcement learning as applied to VizDoom. You, you might have heard of that. It's like a, basically, you know, you play Doom or you're a bot playing Doom and they use reinforcement learning and deep learning. And it's a comparable problem to driving around because you're like navigating a dungeon, you're evading foes or uh, engaging with foes in certain interaction patterns. And that show was an introduction for me to how deep learning and reinforcement learning are are both key to this class of problems. So as you write, neural networks are great at memorization and not yet great at reasoning. But reinforcement learning is brute force propagation of outcomes to knowledge about states and actions. Explain what the shortcomings of raw deep learning are and how reinforcement learning can shore this up with some reasoning. Sure. So to be clear, so you mentioned raw deep learning. I think sort of the precise way to describe that is called supervised learning. It's a, it's most of the success in deep learning has come from this category of techniques called supervised learning, where every single piece of data that's fed into the learning system has been touched in some way by a human being to say what's going on in this in this particular piece of data. So for images with lane markings, it's marking the lanes in the image. For ImageNet competitions that's marking cat versus dog. Marking for an image, is this a cat, is this a dog, or is this some other kind of animal? That's supervised learning, and most of the successes have come from that, up to date, but in terms of application, in terms of value. 
Now that's what I refer to as memorization. So you're memorizing and at a very low grade level, you're memorizing what another human being has annotated for you. You're memorizing patterns. Now the what reinforcement learning hopes to provide and deep reinforcement learning more specifically is to remove as much as possible the human being from the loop of teaching a system of things so it's able it's the goal is to generalize over just a few examples provided by a human being in the form of a, a reward function or a form of an encoded model of a world that provides either perhaps a simulation so most of the success in reinforcement learning like the doom game is simulation it was not really walking another agent walking around in the real world so simulation and the idea is the system learns by playing through the different the different ways that the the world can unroll it acts in different ways and see what those actions have impact on the external world and seeing how can it act in the future in such a way that maximizes reward now the the problem is currently the all the reinforcement learning approaches that we know of and this is true for machine learning in general were have to play for large amount for a very long time we have to play with a very large amount of data in order to learn anything so if you think as human beings when we're children or young or still the learning what a hot stove is like is very quick learning process so it doesn't require more than maybe two three times to touch a hot stove before you realize you know when it's glowing red or certain visual characteristics or tactile characteristics or the different different sensor inputs are associated with a lot of pain and that's learned really quickly our current best reinforcement learning approaches and deep learning approaches have to touch that stove hundreds of thousands of times before they learn not to touch it. And so the the problem there is we're very inefficient learners. So yes, in simulation, you can simulate the touching of a stove over and over to understand which aspects of it are lead to punishment to negative rewards. But if we want to put systems in the real world, like in the driving case, and to teach those systems to avoid crashes, for example, it, you can't quite it's not feasible to put that system out there and crash hundreds of thousands of times uh, tens of thousands of times in order to learn how to avoid the crashes so for now there's this chase towards well can we simulate the real world to sufficiently high resolution that we're able to teach a system of simulation that's actually able to successfully act in the real world and that's currently an open problem that hasn't been solved Right, so you're articulating a specific case of explore versus exploit. We can't really, you know, like I talked to some people at Stripe, this payments company, and they will consciously let payments through that they know are fraudulent, or they will sort of, you know, turn down the dial on their sensitivity to preventing fraud in order to better gather data about fraud. And in that case, okay, we lose some money, not a big deal. You can't do that with self-driving. You can't just let accidents occur and then learn from them. It's too sensitive. Right. You know, this is uh, one of the the biggest challenges for me. The reason I am fascinated by autonomous vehicles, it's one of the first, and I believe it will be the first and the biggest way in which robots really enter our lives, everyday lives. And when you begin to trust when you have to deal with the issues of trust, of understanding what a role of a robot is in society, you know, from the philosophical level on the ethics side to the technological level to everything. Because the reality is, if we were to, if we were to design an autonomous vehicle that successfully operates in this world, it's going to have to crash. So in the same way that the, the credit card fraud will occur, a car will have to be able to, we're going to be, have to be more forgiving of a car causing a fatality. It's a very dark and difficult at the philosophical level, actually, to allow a machine decision to put, its, put a human being 
is in the hands of the machine, and the machine acts in such a way that takes that human being's life. That's really difficult for us as a society to to take, to understand, because especially in driving, it's such a personal experience. It's one, usually one drive, human driver, and there's a car, it's a machine. And here's the moment when you give control to that car, and the car acts in such a way that it kills the person. Mm-hmm. But that's very uh, PR-wise, so New York Times coverage and the general, our general sort of view of this is we're not very forgiving. You know, the fatality in a Tesla that happened during autopilot, it was a big deal. Now, well, I was, just, we I was to- just thinking about that. I thought the response was pretty forgiving, though. I mean, you have a car that had the autopilot on, the driver falls asleep, slams into a uh, tractor trailer, decapitating him, and... I don't know. I felt like the public didn't really like have an outcry, right? You didn't see people with posters in front of Tesla. So, yes, absolutely. So I, I agree with you. But the general feel I get from the public, uh, is that I've talked to a lot of people, especially in the media, and there's a, there's a hunger to <laughs> attack the robots. Like, in general, we see the t- robots as a Terminator, yeah. At any moment, they'll take over. So there's kind of a desire. There's, there's a desire to find the weak link in the in the story. And a single fatality. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, in the situation of the Tesla fatality, it was the car didn't actually do anything outside that looks bad in terms of the car didn't make a decision that's very poor. Mm-hmm. That it, it actually. It makes perfect sense for, even for a human being not to see the white truck. It's It makes sense. What I'm more referring to is if we start allowing machine learning to be part of controlling a vehicle, there's going to be times when a lane marking is completely not seen by a car and it runs off the road. Mm-hmm. It runs off the road in such a way where any human being would have easily kept the car in control. And so it would lead to a fatality that looks terrible or for example sort of the publicized ethical issues a car might accelerate in a, into a crowd of people right for whatever for whatever reason whatever malfunction perhaps on the sensor side or whatever the prediction is of the intent that it uses in detecting the pedestrians and predicting where the pedestrians go it might accelerate into that crowd now that's a tragedy right but if Overall, it leads to a much safer, much lower. If if it if it significantly decreases that thirty eight thousand fatalities that we have in the roads today, perhaps it's something that we should be more open to. And that's kind of a society we have to struggle with these with these questions. Well, and I think a like a good preface to how weird the the cases are going to be is. Like when you you have some slides in your course notes where you have these cases where you take an image of let's say the Empire State Building and then you add these minor perturb and and like you show it to a computer and the computer's like okay Empire State Building and you add these minor perturbations to the picture and if a human looks at it they're still like okay it looks like the Empire State Building maybe the picture looks a little fuzzy now but then you show it to a computer and it's like that's an ostrich. And so that just shows how how different our perception of the world is compared to a machine. And that's why you're going to get these crazy edge cases that seem like, how on earth did the computer not recognize the lanes there? But if you look into the system, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's the, the model was trained in this way and it just didn't learn this edge case. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I guess... I'm trying to imagine cases, but just imagine tragic cases which are very possible where a machine runs over somebody's daughter, right? A young a young girl is crossing the street and a, a car accelerates. And as a society, we have a really hard time dealing with that, uh, with that concept because after all, an artificial intelligence system is a technology and uh, it's, that's heavily regulated when it's on, on the roads. So that'll come up immediately as a discussion in the, in the public, in, in public, and the question is, well, should this technology be part of cars? And that's constantly, you know, this comes up with drones as well, and in other 
applications of uh, artificial intelligence. So it's it's definitely it's definitely on our minds as we're designing machine learning algorithms for the perception side, exactly as you said, Empire State Building being uh, mistaken for an ostrich. Mm-hmm. How does human in the loop? I mean, I, you know, I wanted to talk about some lower level stuff. I hope we can, we can get into that eventually. But like hearing you talk about the policy stuff is really interesting and just the philosophical concerns. So continuing on that high level thread, how does human in the loop fit into the rollout str- or I mean do you have do you have a, a, a picture for how the ro- the ideal rollout strategy is going to work because I mean I hear your concerns and they're very valid and they're very kind of like hard to deal with like how do you do that is human in the loop the the gradient that you gradually that gets you off of the humans towards the full autonomy yeah so as a I'm a big believer that the human has to remain in the loop as a supervisor and as a teacher of a car. So there's most of the folks building autonomous vehicles, most of my colleagues um, have come from the success, our robotics folks have come out, out of the success of the DARPA challenge, which was a challenge where vehicles were tasked with going first going through the desert, then going through an urban environment fully autonomously. So no human in the picture. So the car is is tasked with dealing with every possible situation and not hitting things and staying in lane and all those kinds of things and not breaking down. So th- that's the robotics approach. I see that that a fully autonomous vehicle that doesn't have a steering wheel and based on the learning system or other optimization based system is able to fully control itself autonomously. I think it's, I agree with Warren Buffett. I think he said uh, in 2030, in 2030, 10% of cars will be fully autonomous in this way. So, and he said that's a hedging. That's a bet that's uh, that's a sort of not a conservative bet. That's a risky bet. So I think it's, we're very far away from vehicles being fully autonomous. So, bef- so before that, I think human will be in the loop the way Tesla, in the case of autopilot, is now. So human, whenever the car can't deal with a situation, it has to give control to the human and say, holy crap, help me out here. Uh, so the big challenge here, this is the semi-autonomous vehicle approach. The challenge is the moment of holy crap, help me out here shouldn't be one or two seconds. So right. the, it, the period of tr- the transfer of control currently, like in the Tesla, is sometimes less than a second or a, a couple of seconds. It de- depends the red hands of shame come up as they're called in the Tesla where these red hands glow and you're told to take control of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. That's very few seconds. The ultimate successful system to me, we, you said, how would this be realized? I, I think it would be a system that's able to 10 seconds out uh, tell a human being to wake up, to bring their attention back to the road. And, yeah, and one of the missing pieces there, just to quickly say is, our current cars on the road today, for the most part, have no driver-facing cameras or any sensors that are able to detect the driver except the steering wheel pressure to s- determine that the hands are on the wheel. So your vehicle, our cars have no idea about our state at all, uh, whether we're drunk, sober, sleepy, distracted, in the seat at all. You know, that there has no information about us, about our, our per us personally, each individual human being, and just general global state of where our eyes are looking, where are directed, where our head is directed. And that information, which I'm a big proponent of, is crucial to make a car that's able to hand over control safely and give plenty of time to do so. So engineers who are listening to this podcast, oftentimes like they tune in to get a high-level view of how to build certain things. And, you know, if you were building a web app, you would learn model view controller or client server. With a self-driving car, I don't really understand how the different systems fit together. So we talked about these components, perception, localization, mapping, and so on. Is Is there some best practices for how these systems are put together today can you i guess give me an overview for the 
software architecture of a self-driving car? So, sure. There's no there's no best practices, first of all. That I mean, it's such an open world. We don't it's there's so many different approaches in terms of this from the very subtle like the, the thousands of parameters that control every algorithm to just how the pieces fit together, which sensors are used and so on. There's just a lot of variety. But in in terms of the the what is it the abstract classes of the, <laughs> of the different approaches is the there's first you have to have an ability what's called slam simultaneous localization and mapping you have to be able to find out where you are in the world so uh, as as a car you need to be able to position yourself in the three dimensional world that can be done in a bunch of ways one is having already so first of all it can be done with having a pretty good map of the world you know like google maps and having a gps okay so that's that's one very crude estimate of where you're located gps location latitude longitude will tell you where you are in that map and you can you do some basic information which road i'm on how close i'm into the intersection which lane i'm on and obviously gps is very noisy so that's but that's one estimate and there could be another estimate from so that but you build that separate system as a software engineer you would build that system that says i'm going to the input to the function is my gps coordinates and i have a database that's a google maps and it tells me it puts me to those gps coordinates and says okay i'm in the left lane on this road and i am 100 meters away from this intersection that's that's one little module another module will be okay i'll have a a stereo vision camera which means there's two cameras uh, positioned close to each other looking out into the external world and that camera is able to locate the different obstacles uh, objects in the environment and estimate crudely their their depth meaning the three-dimensional position the point cloud of where they're located so the pedestrian traffic lights signs and so on and that's a little that's another little function that says the input is two images coming at 30 plus frames a second and the output says i am located at this position relative to the traffic sign the pedestrian the other objects in the scene so triangulating everything together all right so now i have two pieces of, if i have implement both these functions i have two pieces of information that says my GPS coordinates and my approximate triangulation of where I'm located relative to those objects. And I can fuse those together. It's decision fusion or sensor fusion, data fusion, where you take those two pieces of information and combine them to make a slightly better estimate about where you're located in that world. The whole point is to be able to locate yourself as accurately as possible in the semantic structure of what this task is so in driving task you have to be in in the lane you have to not be hitting things other obstacles in the scene and you have to be navigating to moving around to get to some location so in that sense that's part one is you localize yourself based on so you it's plug and play another developer might come up and say i have a lidar and that lidar will be able to do a much better job than your stupid stereo vision camera to localize, to give you a better position in this world. But we can all just combine those functions together with sensor fusion and chase the more and more and more accurate localization. And the second part of driving is once you know where you are, you want to, and when the other ob objects are, you want to move around those objects. So that's where the control planning happens. And the way you do it is you have a three-dimensional model of the world with some degree of uncertainty and you generate uh, thousands of different trajectories for yourself and the trajectories for others that you believe based on your model what uh, how other objects move other vehicles other pedestrians and based on all those trajectories it's an optimization problem for the optimization based approach to pick which is the best trajectory for the learning best approach, you use something like reinforcement learning to say 
what is the best trajectory around those objects. Mm. And that's it. That's driving. Perceive the world and then move in that world. When you're teaching the course in self-driving deep learning, what have been the concepts that are most difficult for the students to grasp? It's a good question. I Or maybe you could t- I mean if that's a tough question, like talk about how you sequence the course in self-driving deep learning or talk about how if somebody's listening to this and they want to know how to get started, I mean, obviously there's courses, there's, there's, I think there's a Coursera course, but maybe you have some abstract suggestions for how to strategize about the learning process. Right. So uh, you just, I think it's just a really good question to say what the students struggle with most and just okay. to answer it quickly sure, yeah. um, is I think as, as uh, not just students, but PhD students, and research scientists, professors, everybody is struggling with the question of why something works. Mm. Uh, so from the very basic neural feed forward, fully connected neural networks to all the different flavors of neural networks, convolutional neural networks or current neural networks for deep reinforcement learning, figuring out why something works so that when something doesn't work, you know how to fix it. So how, why there's a bunch of parameters that control the behavior of a neural network. And so what do I set each individual parameter to to make it work for my particular application? So at, at gaining an intuition, this is the, the process of learning, I think, in the case of a deep learning course, uh, like the one I taught, like the others out there, is gaining an intuition about what works and what doesn't. So how many nodes in the network, how many layers how what kind of optimization uh, algorithms what kind of learning parameters learning rate what kind of pre-processing on the data is needed well what kind of so, so there's 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 a lot of different parameters that control especially with reinforcement learning that control the training process and so we start the way you teach and the way i learn myself is really boil down every single type of approach to the simplest possible problem so a very small, look at a very small neural network and learn how, for example, if looking at backpropagation, which is the process of training a network, uh, a network that is producing random results, how do you take that network and over time train it to produce the correct results? That's the process of backpropagation. Backpropagating errors through the network such that they adjust its weight, weights not to make those errors. So... You can start with a network of 100 million parameters, or you can start with a network with just 10 parameters. And to to visualize and play around and see how the different hyperparameters of training a network affect the the way the weights are adjusted. Just play, look at toy problems for each one to gain slowly gain intuition. Because the problem is when you scale the size of a network. That's where the magic happens, sort of, quote-unquote. But we don't have a good intuition about why it happens. And so why, in the case of deep reinforcement learning, uh, a system that knows nothing is able to learn over time how to play an Atari game is is a mystery. It's, it's one of the... It, it would seem through this kind of brute force process of reward and punishment, be, ability to learn abstract notions of what it takes to win a game would seem to be impossible, but it works. And so it's over time you start to gain an intuition of why it might work. That's the challenge. You know, what's it's funny about this is I, so I used to be a poker player back in the day and like, cause back when it was, when it was kind of easier to, to win money playing poker online. But one of the things, you know, the people who were successful were the people who read these books about mathematics and, I mean, poker math, or they they had, or they could articulate, many of them could articulate uh, mathematically why a play was, u- why a play was good, why a strategy was useful, and, you know, we always used to mock the people who were oh, instinctive players and like, oh, I've got a feel for this thing. Some of the players who, were, who would play by feel, they would be successful but over time, the people who were mathematically oriented just dominated them. I was, you know, they always had this, you know, a reason, a reason for why they did something. But it's just funny that like now, 
we're you're talking about a, a branch of computer science where basically we don't really know how to talk about this formally. So we and I've heard multiple people say this like you have to develop this intuitive feel for what's going to work in deep learning. Like why is that? Why are <laughs> how did we get here? Well, it's interesting because yeah, in the case of poker, you're probably the math people, the math guys and girls are. It probably they succeeded because they're able to silence the irrational parts of our brain that says like I have a feeling that the flush is coming or something. Like you're you're able to look at the actual odds and calculate statistically what a, what is what is the right move here, and based on that information start to play with the bluffing and all that kind of stuff. But in the case, so it's hard because that's the, the scientific way uh, to, to, to give that up, to say, to, to, to always explore, to explore the, how a system, how intelligence can emerge uh, requires some intuition. So you have to let go of the need to prove stuff. So I come from the theoretical computer science background. Well, you have to prove, you know, uh, P versus NP. You have to prove the complexity of, a, of the running time complexity of an algorithm. And the idea that you have no way to prove, but it just works, was, was, very, was viewed very negatively in academia when I, was, when I started. I think that's changed completely with the success of deep learning. And it's actually the reason why deep learning, uh, deep learning, Deep learning is just another word for neural networks. It's the reason why neural networks have gone through a couple of winters, AI winters, that because we don't understand why they work, but they seem to work, it captivates the minds of people. They get super excited. They start thinking that they will solve everything in the world. We have created general intelligence. That was true when the first perceptron came out in the 50s, 50s, I think. It makes, you know, they're going to solve everything. They're going to fly to the moon. They're going to... Flying cars, for sure, will be around. But the reality is, no, these are just effective uh, tools, and we're slowly, slowly trying to discover, in the same way that Darwin sailed around the world discovering what the hell is the mechanism behind the evolution, the, the, the diversity that we see in the world. That's how we're trying to sail around the, the, the neural network world and try to understand... What is the mechanism behind the the emergent ability of these networks to predict stuff? Cat versus dog at the simplest level, but at the coolest and most difficult level is the reinforcement or even unsupervised learning. How are you how you're able to find generalized patterns from nothing essentially from from no no dictionary, no supervised learning um, human input. Okay, so. I mean, I could talk to you for a long time about this, but we're kind of up, running up against time, you know, running, drawing to the close of the interview. And I, I wanted to ask you some about the business of self-driving and how these companies are strategizing about it, how they're thinking about it. You know, I, I read that you're interested in jujitsu or you, you practice jujitsu, and I think of the strategy of Google as very jujitsu-y in the self-driving world because it seems like they're very much like trying to lay as low as possible and then i I don't know i mean how do you see the different players in the self-driving space and how do you contrast their strategies do you have any predictions about how they're going to to roll out things oh it's interesting so i used to work at google and uh, i now work a lot with teslas or teslas and it's a very different approach uh, of Elon Musk and Google, or Waymo now. As one is, yes, st- Google is Waymo. Is the approach is to stay low. It's to, to stay quiet, design vehicles that are very safe, very never hit anything. You know, they, they map at a very high resolution the world around them and, you know, travel at 35 miles an hour, at 40 miles an hour around a very well-mapped, safe street. The Elon Musk approach is to say, basically, everybody in the auto industry is scared, and I'm going to, you know, just like you go to Mars, I'm going to release fully autonomous vehicles by next year, and say we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, shoot to the moon and 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 get it done. Mm-hmm. 
And that's his approach and, and not shy away and on Twitter promise things. And, and literally, like I said, there's a hundred thousand plus vehicles are driving themselves autonomously on the roads today. This is sort of the little known secret of, of Tesla is autopilot for those that haven't driven it is really pretty advanced in terms of capable automation capability. So those are the two approaches. I'm generally a fan in terms of just personally speaking, I'm a fan of the bold yes. and the brave and the risk takers in the world. And I believe that in order to get to reduce from 38,000 fatalities right. to zero fatalities, we have to, we have to take risks. We have to be brave. We have to be willing to lose our entire company on an idea. And that's exactly what you have to do with the autonomous vehicles. Because if, a, if, if your car kills several hundred people from a malfunction, uh, there's a very big risk you're taking in PR or uh, government stepping in and shutting down the company and so on. So I'm a big fan of Tesla in that way. But I'm also, because we're working closely with NHTSA, which is a government organiz the organization tasked with ensuring that vehicles on the road are safe. I also am well aware of safety and how important that is. So, you know, there's a lot of my colleagues in computer science sometimes are so enamored by the coolness of a technology that they don't think about the safety implications. This is sort of the worry that people have about creating artificial intelligence, that us nerds will create this awesome AI and not and forget to um, to make it ethically sound to make it to make sure it makes safe decisions you know ethically sound decisions but all that said i really despise caution because and and sort of being trying being careful because i think the whole idea of science and innovation is being brave and bold in these ideas that said i google i think so that's one side that's just me personally sort of on a horse with a sword but the, in terms of business side, what is the right bet here? I think Google has been exceptionally successful at playing the long game. And I think Google has a lot more to lose than Tesla. So I think, as I said, autonomous vehicles will not be here until I'm with Warren Buffett. He, he's rarely wrong. <laughs> so I think they won't be here for a couple of decades. So as a business decision... It's not a good one to go all in on autonomous vehicles at this time, even though the public is generally very hopeful and optimistic about, you know, there's been a lot of companies that promise, you know, in 2020, in 2022, in 2025, we'll have fully autonomous vehicles. Toyota, Ford, every, everybody and their grandmother has promised that they'll have fully autonomous vehicles. But when the reality, I mean, I, my bet is that the, the realities will be a little farther out because of all the different, the technology side, the policy side, the societal side, just all of those are huge challenges to overcome. But to overcome them, I believe we need the risk takers. So I'm a huge supporter of uh, our friend Elon. Yes. Okay. So last question to wrap up. Uh, deep learning and machine learning, these fields are so rich. There's so much going on in them. There's this chart you have in one of your presentations that I really like that shows basically, you know, the, the trajectory of a person who is learning about deep learning and like, you know, it's like you start off like, oh, this is so intimidating. And then very quickly you're like, oh, I know everything and this is going to be awesome. And then, and then it drops off again. And you're like, you realize you know nothing about the field because it's so deep and there's so much going on. Do you feel like we're witnessing the a field that's going to bifurcate away from computer science because it is so deep? So when you say bifurcate, so like in this in the same way that there didn't used to be computer science, that didn't used to be a thing. So it's like you know we we went from like kind of the engineering and math departments, and then we got this specialty of computer science. It almost feels like machine learning or deep learning might be a new field. That's a really interesting idea. That that's really really interesting. I, I haven't actually heard that articulated in that way before. I that's the feeling I actually have. The experience I have is there's a lot of folks. You know, there's so much interest. There's, there's there's young students coming to me every day saying, you know, I'm fascinated by deep learning, right? They're not talking about I'm fascinated by databases or 
JavaScript frameworks or like the software engineering concept or theoretical computer science, yeah. big O, or all the, or system architecture. So it almost feels like there's this very hot topic that's actually counter to the way computer science is taught. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating idea that you would have like a, a deep learning engineer that's completely... Because you don't need to know databases. You don't need to know model view control. You don't need to know big O. Like, you don't really need any of this stuff. Of of course. Yeah, well, absolutely. It helps. Really it, does, it doesn't kind of, hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, so you need to know all that stuff if you want to innovate the future of deep learning architectures. But you're, you're right. The sort of the most, there's a lot of companies out there that sort of need to solve practical problems with machine learning. And for that, that's essentially sort of, that's kind of called like data science now. It's when you basically are cleaning data sets, organizing data sets and extracting information from them using various methods, statistical or machine learning. But really that could be its own discipline. That's a really fascinating thing to think about. But I, I hope not because I hope computers... I. It's a it's a weird it's a weird thing to think about because you know computer science is infiltrating everything. It's mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, aerospace, every single field. Library sciences like psychology. <laughs> so psychologists now all have to code. You, it's it's the people in, in psychology who are, aren't able to program are finding themselves left behind because most you know with, with the advent of mechanical Turk. You want to be able to use computers to put together cool experiments. And so it's hard to know what computer science will be in 30 years because software engineering is essentially, it's becoming the core of every discipline. And so that's a really interesting question to think about what that evolves, what where robotics fits into this whole picture too. So yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think we're going to be doing deep learning. Like if you're, if you're, <laughs> If you're a literature li literature major, college, I think in 20 years, you'll probably be using TensorFlow uh, yes. for, for your homework. <laughs> All right. Well, Lex, it's been really fun talking to you. The time flew by. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Okay, Thanks so cool. much.